from VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship. This is Circle of Willis, a podcast for and about the scientists, authors, journalists, and even a few mystics who make and communicate science for all of us. Hey everyone, it's been a little while since I've been here in your phones or on your computers or wherever, however it is that you are listening to this, but here I am and I've got Susan Johnson with me, not literally here right now as I record this, but in the recording I made of a conversation Sue and I had not long ago. Now, some of you will know that Sue Johnson is the inventor of Emotionally Focused Therapy or EFT which is an evidence-based therapy for couples, one focused on repairing and enhancing the kinds of emotional bonds that we all depend on for our health and well-being. I'm, uh, I'm super lucky to have had this time with Sue. She's what the city folks call a big deal. For example, she's the author of a huge number of peer-reviewed scientific articles, including some classics, like her 1986 paper for the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy entitled Bonds or Bargains, which, as they say, changed everything. Since then, she's also written a bunch of books, some for practicing psychotherapists and some, notably Hold Me Tight and Love Sense, for the general public. In 2017, Sue was honored by the Canadian government with induction into the Order of Canada, one of Canada's highest civilian honors, which is designed to recognize outstanding achievement, dedication to the community, and service to the country. She's currently Professor Emeritus of Clinical Psychology at the University of Ottawa. Ottawa. It's a funny word to say for me. And the founder of the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. Now, my conversation with Sue was sort of epic, And so I've decided to release it in two separate episodes, parts one and two. Here in part one, Sue and I talk a little bit about how her professional goals have expanded from establishing an effective psychotherapy for couples to changing the way psychologists think about adult romantic relationships to really to teaching the whole world about the science of love. But the real content of part one is Sue's life before EFT. It's about the life experiences that sort of predisposed her to think in terms of the emotional dances we all enter into with our romantic partners. It's a fascinating story, and it begins right now. So why don't you first, what is this internet thing that you guys are doing these days? Well, the idea was really to take everything we've understood about love and the science of love and how to create love relationships and how to repair love relationships to the public. So I wrote Hold Me Tight and I wrote Love Sense. Hold Me Tight was your first first book for the public. Public public book, yeah. And that did get the word out to people, but we decided that if we really wanted to make those things available to people and really help them improve their relationships that we should do an online program So we've tried to put Hold Me Tight and the conversations from Hold Me Tight that come out of all our work 
from emo of, with emotionally focused couple therapy, which we've developed over the last 30 years and researched the results of. We've taken the Hold Me Tight book and the Hold Me Tight conversations and we've turned it into an online program for couples that people can do in their own home. And the message we're trying to get across to people is we really do have a science of love now. And if you are willing to learn and to discover your, how your emotions are come up in the dance with your partner and the dance you do with your partner that we can really show you how to have what human beings have always wanted, which is a loving, lasting relationship. And that, as far as I'm concerned, is about what, as revolutionary as you about. damn well get. Yes, yeah. that's to be able to do that is, um, as far as I'm concerned, is it's at least as important as having gone to the moon or, you know, um, having discovered the, how DNA works is to say love isn't a mystery anymore. We know how to help people create loving, lasting bonds that can last a lifetime. Love is something we make sense of. Love is something that is actually, on one level, exquisitely rational, even though it's filled right. with emotion. Right, right. And it's healthy, and we can study it just like we can study anything else, just like we can study neurons in the brain and what you understand you can shape. We can show you how to shape a loving relationship. And that, I think, is pretty important in terms of human health and happiness. So your mission, has, has your mission expanded? I mean, when, when I think of Sue Johnson in the early days, I think of couples therapy and sort of repairing difficult marriages or, or maybe not even just marriages, but romantic relationships more sort of broadly. But this sounds a little bit like the the mission is bigger. What, you're, what I'm hearing from you is this is um, you're trying to teach people how to love. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, you know, you see what you can do, and then when you find you can do something, it's kind of like the mission does get bigger because you say, "Oh, maybe," you know, like I dance Argentine tango, and it, it's a very difficult dance. And years ago, if you'd said, "What's your goal?" I would have said. My goal is to just just be able to do it. You know, just yeah. be able to do it and not look like an idiot. Well, and if you say to me, "What's your goal now?" I say, "Oh, my goal is to be able to dance with the best tango dancers anywhere in the world and keep up with them, and be as uh, for a moment be able to dance with them. Maybe not be as good as they are, but be able to dance with them and feel this amazing joy and connection." So that didn't even feel feasible to me, you know, four years ago. So I guess it has expanded. Like I wanted to, I wanted to really understand relationships and how to help couples. And then I think it expanded to, I want to influence the field of couple therapy. I want this to be available to all couples therapists. I want people to know that there's this way of working with couples that is predictable and explainable and works you know it, it's not just chatting to couples about relationships couples therapy has become very popular and at the same time the training is pretty random in this field yeah and I so, would say so so I wanted to change the field of couple therapy I wanted to show that emotion mattered and the emotions the therapist friend and that you can work with emotion and that you can help people deal with their emotions differently in a way that pulled them close and not only pulled them close and helped them with their marriage, but created this secure bond. Yeah. And 
attachment science, bonding science has grown. And I guess you're right. My mission now is not just to change the field of couple therapy. I feel like we're doing that in EFT. EFT is taught in all the universities now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's out there. Yeah. I feel like if people want it, it's out there. It won't fit for every therapist, but it's there. So now my mission is to tell the general public about it, to tell people, listen, you know, you can learn about love. You can shape your love relationships. It's not going to work every time. You know, it's love relationships are still complicated. It's a complicated dance, you know, to have that kind of level of intimacy with somebody. But to be able to say that we can understand relationships and we can build good relationships that last seems to me that if we believe that, we have no choice but to take what we know out to the public because people out there are dying for this information. People yeah. out there are lost, they're hurting, they're giving up on relationships, and it's impacting not just individuals' health and happiness, it's impacting the kind of society we have. Yeah. So yeah, we it's more like a responsibility now rather than just a mission. We have to tell the public about this. People have the right to know this. Did you say so? So you've published a bunch of books, a bunch of sort of workbooks and, and books for therapists and stuff like that. But then you you have this first sort of popular book, Hold yeah. Me Tight, and and now the the more recent book, Love Sense. Do you think that the the two popular books that you have out reflect this this sort of evolution in, yes. in, in your this broadening of the mission? Yeah, I think something happened to me when I wrote Hold Me Tight. Um, it was probably one of the most difficult things I've done in my life. It was like I had learned ballet all my life. I learned to be an academic and a researcher and a mm -hmm. teacher in a university. Yeah. And then suddenly I felt this commitment to turn it into a book that ordinary folks could understand that, that would help ordinary folks. And um, I didn't know what I was committing to. It was like being trained as a ballet dancer and suddenly somebody says to you, well, forget all that and now learn to dance tango. Right. And you go, what? <laughs> and it forced me to get clearer. It forced me to say things simpler. It forced me to look at what we were doing and be able to explain it more and more clearly. It forced me to go into all the things I knew about attachment science and sift for what really mattered to people and what people really needed to know. And people, by people you mean non-experts. Public. People who are living their lives, have ordinary aspirations that all of us would feel. Yes. But don't have access to the, the detailed knowledge locked in these vaults. And That's right. At the universities. And for me, I don't know if you felt this, but I'm interested if you did. I sometimes feel this tension between explaining things accurately yes. and explaining things in a way that's understandable. <laughs> yes, I think there is a tension there. I mean, as an academic, you, for one thing, you're always taught to sort of qualify everything and you'll be said, well, on the other hand, this and that and something else. You can't get your message out like that. And yet, at the same time, you want to keep your integrity. Right. You, want to, you don't want to just... You know, you don't want to make it sort of nonsense or superficial. So I struggled a lot with that book and it was quite humbling for me. I went and got a professional editor, um, although part of my brain said, what are you talking about? I'm a good writer. I'm an academic. I can write books. Right, I can. Right. I don't need. And I actually sat 
down on the pavement near my hometown in my little my little sort of shopping center street on a hot day I sat on the pavement with my back against this concrete block and my agent said to me are you going to hire this really expert editor to help you or not so you have to decide you have to do this and I sat there and I thought never mind my ego do I want people to really get my work and do I want to make a difference in the lives of ordinary people or not? And my brain said, then you damn well get somebody to help you. And I got my editor, Anastasia, and it was brutal. It was painful. Was what do you painful. mean it was brutal? How was it brutal? Oh, I'd spend days writing four pages that I felt completely explained some point with incredible accuracy and clarity and she would come to the house and look at it and just draw lines through it and say, that's boring. Nobody cares about that. Start again. <laughs> yeah, that's my worst fear. When I, think about, when I think about writing something for the public, that's my worst fear. I don't know if I'll be able to do it. You know, if I read an academic study these days, there's so much jargon. I mean, it's, it's I can tough. hardly understand yeah, it. I know. This is and nonsense. And then I find, I find myself talking like that sometimes. I go home and I'm talking to my family over Christmas dinner or something and my mom starts little beads of sweat on her forehead and she finally just goes I don't know what will you stop it stop talking like that <laughs> my right. sister makes fun of me my brother just rolls his eyes well you know there's a movement in law called um there's a movement about plain language for lawyers yeah it's a good movement. the law should be something that everyone can understand Read. yeah yeah, that's, psychology that's, yeah. should be something that everyone oh, can understand. And um, get it. And we we say to clinicians, you should pay attention to research, and then we use a different language. Why should clinicians pay attention to our studies? Well, don't you think? You know, let me just push back a little bit. The problem with a lot of the lay language, it seems to me, is that the words mean a broader array of possible things, so it's harder to be precise. And that's why we have jargon, right? On one level, yes, but I think it's got to, you do have to be precise, but it's, you have to be careful how you use words and what you mean by words, you know, and I think that's part of a scientific discipline. And I think one of the problems in psychotherapy is we use words like exposure, and it means something totally different to all the eight scientists and clinicians that are talking about it. So you don't know actually what you're talking about. A good example of that is mindfulness. We oh, use well, words like mindfulness worst, and it yeah. has a thousand different meanings, right? So you do have to be precise. But I think we've got to the point where we're becoming irrelevant, where clinical students or clinicians aren't going to look at our research studies. We think they should, but they're not going to because they're filled with jargon. And lots of the studies we do are highly artificial lab studies that have nothing to do with the messy lives that these clinicians are helping people deal with out in the world yeah. and we become irrelevant and then yeah. we blame clinicians and we say clinicians aren't listening to science well no they're not because um, because we're we're we become irrelevant so what i was what i've been trying to do is speak in a voice that reaches ordinary people teaches ordinary people because it seems to me clinical psychology is about helping people live good, happy, productive lives. And if it's not about that, then it's a waste of time and it should just pack up and go home. So in particular, in clinical psychology, we should be able to take what we say and turn it into the language that a bus driver can understand. Yeah. And yeah. I think we have to, if we need help with that, then we need help with that. But 
I've learned over the years, you know, EFT, Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy, that I've put, that I put together and have studied for the last 30 years, what I learned that was fascinating was in the beginning, people said to me, well, this is a very sophisticated therapy. You're teaching people about their emotions and how to communicate and you're teaching them about the dances they get caught in with each other. This is very abstract. And the only people that are really going to get off on this is very educated women. Men aren't going to like it. They don't want to know about this stuff. And um, you, un, uneducated people, anyone who doesn't have a, you know, an MA or at least a university degree isn't going to get this at all. And what we've learned over the 30 years is that's nonsense. No, that people actually, get it primarily. Pe- People get it on an emotional level. People get it because it speaks to their loneliness and their pain and their longing. People get it. And what we found was that level of education made no difference to the effectiveness. In fact, if you ask me if I'd prefer to deal with a corporate lawyer in couple therapy and help him repair his relationship or the bus driver down the road, I'd say, give me the bus driver. Right, right. But that's partly you, Sue. I mean, if you don't mind my saying so, I mean, I think that you do, I think you do have a, a particular skill. I think you have a skill. And I think that a lot of scientists and a lot of clinicians, you know, clinical scientists, people that, that develop therapies and, and study therapies for, with a mind to training. I think a lot of them, a lot of us don't have that skill. And so two things happen, it seems to me. On the one hand, the, the information just stays locked up. In the university, yeah, and on the other hand, in some ways worse, journalists who don't have any idea really what we're doing take and write a story about it that's not accurate and get it gets out of our hands and gets it gets away from us. Yeah, so we're we're sort of stuck if we don't learn how to speak and interact in both worlds. That's right. I guess I just saw that as my responsibility. You know, um, I wanted to make a difference in the field of couple therapy and to help therapists learn how to work with couples. I wanted to be really good at working with couples and understand it myself. And I'm fascinated with attachment and bonding. I wanted to understand these bonds that people create that, from my point of view, the field of couple and family therapy completely ignored. It's like, talk about miss the boat. You know, they, <laughs> they, they just looked at power. They looked at boundaries. Yeah. They looked at control, roles. roles. They looked at all these things. They said, oh, these women are enmeshed with their children. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the problem. That's the problem. Right, yeah. And they looked at creating boundaries. And nobody looked at nurturing and connection and kids screaming out for someone to respond to them. Nobody looked at bonding. Yeah. Nobody looked at emotion. So... I wanted to bring this stuff into the field. But then there's a certain point where you have to also say, we have to be able to train therapists. We have to speak in simple language, in language that gets them engaged. And we have a responsibility to do that for the public too. Yeah, That's part of psychology, it seems to me, especially clinical psychology, is public education. Yeah. So I think my mission has changed, actually. You know, um, I wanted to impact therapists and... No, um, you really want to impact society, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Well, I grew up in an English pub, which I didn't realize at the time, but it was an amazing community. And I grew up in that. 
and I did. Your, your parents run the ran pub the or? pub. So what were, you, were your parents educated? What, what kind of what kind no, of? No, my mother was pretty uneducated. I think she was pretty illiterate. My father, I think, was a very intelligent man who had a minimal amount of education, but who went in the navy. He was in the navy, and he learned. The war? Yeah, and he learned lots of things in the navy. So he had a. I think he actually, my father had a lot of skills and a lot of intelligence how much actual education he had. He certainly never had a, a university. He never got to go to university. He got educated by the Navy, you know, but... Um, and your mom didn't go to the Navy or anything. My she, mom she, she didn't go to university. ran a pub and then was a hairdresser. She ran a pub. She was an aggressive, down-to-earth... Maybe this is where I get the thing about being down-to-earth. She was an aggressive, down-to-earth, feisty, funny, niddle... <laughs> blonde barmaid who who when the pub fit when the pub ended and closed she just went out and bought herself a hairdressing shop and started hairdressing she didn't know anything about hairdressing yeah she didn't know any, she just did it okay that's my mom okay and <laughs> she's getting stuff done where was the pub where was it the in pub London? was in chatham um chatham? kent just outside the dockyard gates in and kent? and kent just south of london and as a child it was kind of a bizarre uh, child place for a child, really. There were no other children. Uh -huh. There were no children on the street. There, were no, there, there just weren't. And then I was sent for my schooling to a, host, a pretty hostile... public schools? No, I was sent by a load of... A, a series of accidents. I was a relatively poor child who spoke like a cockney... <laughs> who was a who was a Protestant from a pub oh, who suddenly geez. ends up in this upper class Catholic private school where all the girls speak with a different accent. Where the what girls, kind of accent? The girls speak like this, and I spoke like that. <laughs> oh. I said, "Here, I don't want to go to school, okay?" Right, yeah. and, I, and I'd get into a lot of trouble because I didn't know my catechism. The nuns. What the hell were you doing there? Well, would you really want to know? Yeah, I was there to change my accent. You were asked to change your accent. No, my mother told me that I was. You had to change your accent. She told me, "Quote, what's all this learning, all this reading stuff? Where's that going to get you? It ain't no good learning all this reading. Books don't matter. Just change your accent, and then you can marry a man with a suit." That was why I was there. She was a practical. She's she a practical was a practical-minded lady. And so I did change my accent. And then to her horror, I you became obsessed anyway. with books. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, a, it was an act of defiance for me to read books. And then when I actually said I was going to go to university. You went to Catholic school pretty young. I went to Catholic school at four. And uh -huh. I left at 17 with a very narrow but amazingly good education the irony of my young life is that those Catholic nuns who saw life through pretty narrow prism yes. taught me to think. Wow. How about that, huh? So I went out into the world to university and to my amazement, once I got over the narrowness of my education, you know, my, um, to my amazement, I found that I, they'd given this, me this amazing vocabulary and this amazing ability to think independently and to reason, that's what they gave me. They didn't teach me math. Right. So when I came up against statistics, <laughs> I was in deep trouble. 
But so I grew up in a very strange world where, and maybe this is why I've always understood that reality is relative. Um, I grew up in two worlds. I grew up in a very pragmatic English pub where I saw from a very young age things that we don't think children should see. I saw adults having what I understood now, understand now were panic attacks from the war. I saw adults oh have God. PTSD meltdowns and my father would knock people out you, and carry you, them wait, in the... Wait, wait, wait. Your father would knock people yes, out? Yes, he'd knock. They, they'd start to be freaking out and get violent. And he would my hit dad them? would come and he'd just KO them. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he would. That's not funny. No, but, but, I, it, but it's it wasn't... Funny. It never alarmed me because I knew my it dad... It didn't alarm you? No, he came and he basically knocked them out very... He, like, he, he just um, popped them on the chin <laughs> and they'd fall down. This is the way I saw it, okay? And he'd pick them up and he'd take them in the back room and then I would listen to the door oh and they'd be God. crying. Oh, you've got to be kidding. They'd be crying and my dad would be talking to them and I understood that some bad things had happened in the war and I saw people get violent and I saw people have fights and I saw people pick people up and I saw all kinds of things. And strangely enough, in many ways, my childhood was amazingly safe because... I was a little girl in an English pub and I felt like everyone in that pub protected me. Uh -huh. My father protected me. My granny protected me. I called everyone uncle. I had about 30 uncles. Uh, everyone. My, that's nice. My favorite auntie. You turns, had lots of what we call allo parents. You yes. Allo parents all exactly. over the place. My favorite auntie. I found out when I was 18, when I talked to my father, I liked Auntie Nancy the best of Auntie all. Auntie Nancy. And my favorite, and what he told me was, because she had bright red lips, and she was always so kind to me. And he uh -huh. said, well, Auntie Nancy was actually the pub prostitute, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, There was You're a pub kidding. prostitute? Yes, of course. It was a naval pub. Oh, so Lord. I said, you're kidding. And he said... No, Auntie Nancy was the pub, the pub prostitute. prostitute. And, and she was your favorite aunt. Yes, she was the high class lady of the night. She high was the one that went the with the admirals and, this was and all the above officers. Board in, 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 as far as your, your dad was concerned, your of mom course. was concerned, running yes. the pub. Yes, and the other thing that what I was. What was the name of the pub? It was called the Royal Marine. The Royal Marine? And the other thing I did as a child, and you can see how this morphed into me becoming fascinated with couple therapy, is as a child, a working class child, Nobody had ever told my parents that children weren't supposed to work hard. So I was told to stand, I was taught to stand on a stool and wash glasses and, and dry them and stack them on the shelves. So I spent a lot of time listening to all these adult conversations. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I mean, so no. I picked up patterns in conversations when I was five. I, mean, I can remember standing there and thinking, oh, here's, you know, Fred. Fred comes in at six every night. And Fred says the same things every night to my father. And my father says the same things back. So I couldn't have put it into words then. But what I got on some innate level was this isn't about information. No, right. This is this about is... emotional engagement. Oh, Jesus. Fred comes to talk me. to my dad and my dad talks to Fred. And this is about this connection. No, I couldn't have put it into words. I think the pub had a lot to do with how relatively fast I picked up um, patterns between people and 
tuning into conversations in a particular way and being able to deal with a wide range of emotions. Your emotions didn't freak me out. And I'd seen them like all. You could also see like two separate axes in the conversation. One was information exchange. That's right. And one was sort of emotional connection and bonding. That's right. Yeah. Because the fact of the matter is Fred did say the same thing every day to my father. And my father did say the same thing back. Isn't that incredible? So what is this about, this conversation? Well, it's not about information. God Because they don't, damn. it's that none of it. That blows my mind. Right. So then I see, so then I do all, I go to, I emigrate to Canada I yeah, get right. a degree. So, so you, went, you, 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 you went to undergraduate school. I went to undergrad and did English literature because that's what my headmistress In, told me to do. <laughs> English literature. Because she couldn't get you to stop reading books. She thought, well, I'll just throw her all the way she into purgatory. Susan, Susan, you will go to university and you will do English literature. And I said, yes, sister. I didn't yes, know anything sister. about anything. But where did you go? Hull University. Hull? Which was um, um, right beside the fish docks and um, was a... Uh, the only university that would take a 17-year-old. Actually, the nun said to me, Susan, you will take the entrance exams for Oxford. Yeah, and wow. I didn't realize at the time that I was probably the only girl in the school that was asked to do that. And, you know, I didn't see myself as particularly so intelligent. So you didn't see yourself... Did you, did you, I mean, that was, that's, a, that's quite a recommendation from the sister. Yes, but I must have had a lot of guts because I said, no, sister because I was desperate to go to university. I said, I want to go next year. And I was only 17. So the, she said, Susan, the only university, only red brick university will take <laughs> you at 17. Red brick. So I applied to Hull and I got in. And I went and I did English literature. And I didn't see myself... All the way through for your degree? Yes. And wow. drama. Drama. I've never... I didn't know the side of you. Oh, I, I, I want to discuss some English literature. Well, listen, you literature, can learn a whole lot more about Do uh, you see me trying to do it as a British? And I just completely just fell all over myself. Well, and literature. you... Well, you can't do an English I accent, can't. sweetheart. I know. But It's one of my... You know, I learned a lot more about people from novels than I think I ever did in, you know, my psychology courses. That's what they the say. Truth. They say they're empathy machines. Right. Novels. Yeah. And so I got into that, but of course... That didn't translate into a job. So then I took um, a year of adult education. And I think both of those things really, really shaped What's me. What's adult education? It's basically, it was, it was a course in teaching adults uh -huh. instead of teaching little kids. So I learned to be an educator. Nice. And then I taught in a little college in Oxford for a year. And then I emigrated to Canada, which was a huge thing to do in retrospect. Yeah. But in... Way back then, it felt like the only path and I wanted. And did your parents still own the pub at that point? No, no, no the pub was, was long gone and my mother was hairdressing. Yeah. And my mother said, it will be a tragedy if you don't take over my hairdressing shop in Strood High Street, Susan. And, I, and all I remember thinking is, I'll die, I'll die. If I'm doing hair in Strood High Street, I'm going to die, right? And an alcoholic would be a good outcome, right? Yeah. So I thought, no, mom, I'm going to university and then I'm going and to I'm do some. And I'm going to Canada. Yeah, well, Why she, Canada? Because they spoke English and I could get there. You speak English in England. Well, <laughs> no, I did want to stay in England. Okay, well, so you, you're, that was... you're really saying to me, why didn't I want to stay in England? Because I was working class. Uh -huh. 
so working class, I mean, we talk about, I tell people that, that I come from a working class background, but that's American working class. American working class can mean a hundred different things. But in, in a place like England, working class is working class. I mean, the, the class system in England is serious business, right? It's totally serious business. And I don't think you can understand it unless you've lived it. And people say, how come you had to leave England? I said, I, I had to get out. And when I mean that, I mean the way you have to get out of a burning building. Yeah. Okay. I had to get out because I was female and working, and class, working class. Two and strikes I, against. And I felt that my life was narrow, narrow, narrow. And I was becoming angrier and angrier. And I just felt that there had to be a bigger world. So I said I was going to try and go to Canada. And bless his heart, my father supported it. Your mom didn't? No. My mom said it's a tragedy that you're not coming back and being it's a hairdresser. Being a hairdresser. <laughs> oh, my God. The hairdresser shop is going to close down. What are they going to do? Right. But, you know, bless his heart, my dad said, of course you must go, dear. Bless his heart. I don't know what How that must have know? cost him. How did he know that? Because he'd gone. He'd, when he was 16, he ran away to the Navy and lied about his age, and the Navy had educated him and taken him all over the world. And I think and he, wanted he wanted that for me. He wanted a little bit of that for his daughter. Were you, were you an only child? Yes. Wow. And my main attachment figure was my dad. Wow. And he taught me to trust myself and believe in myself and be independent in a way that I think was completely revolutionary for his time for a yeah. working class man. Well, you how know, did you feel about leaving? I mean, you, you wanted to get out of the burning building, but still, you know, your attachment figure is your dad. Leaving him was hard, but leaving England was easy. I felt that it was a trap for me. Uh -huh. And when I came to Canada, I ended up in Vancouver. Nice. And I That's felt like nice. I'd died and gone to it's heaven. The most in my, I think it's the most beautiful city in North America. Well, never mind beautiful. At the time I went there, which was um, hippie time. Oh, yeah. It everybody was, was like... Open, groovy man, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, oh, wow. You want to sleep on the beach under the stars? Wow. You know, like uh, like everything. And I'd only been there a couple of that weeks. That sounds pretty nice to me. Yeah. That well, sounds good. I went, um, I had to become a graduate student in English literature to get into Canada, by which time I wasn't interested in English literature. But, but you, I, gonna, you, you got into graduate school in English literature. Yes, in Canada. At UBC. at UBC. Love and, that campus. But I was into acting at that point, so I helped uh, create an acting company. Which and what, is, what time is, when is this? It's like I'm 22. So, but what year is, is this oh roughly? Oh, God, I don't know. I get confused. It's, it's the 70s. 70s. Yes, early 70s. And I'm, I'm in this new place, and um, I feel like I've died and gone to heaven, and I'm, I'm acting and I'm studying literature, which I'm not really interested in. Yeah, you don't care. And I join all these hippies. I don't even know what hippie is. But <laughs> You're I, finding they out. They said we're hippies. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't know what that is, but you look nice, so it's all right. So I end up um, in this basement room for 10 bucks a month. And after I've been there about two weeks, somebody says to me, have you ever been to a Gestalt group? And I said, group. I don't know what a gestalt group is. <laughs> they said, oh, it's where people grow. Because, <laughs> because, because everyone in Canada is into growing. And I said, really? Everyone in England's into surviving? Like, this is... 
<laughs> Growing. The okay. 70s. So therapy I, in the seventies. So I went to this Gestalt group. Right there. And there, in the middle <laughs> of the room, is this guy. <laughs> um, fantastic looking guy. He looks a bit like Robert Redford, only better. Better. Screaming his head off and banging a <laughs> pillow with a racket. Right? So to cut a long story short, I married that guy. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> he was a lot more Didn't entertaining. He was a lot more interesting yeah. than most of the English men that I'd gone he out with. sounds like it. Yes. Yeah. So I married him. He's banging on pillows with rackets. Yeah. And he was a, a wonderful guy. He was a really, he was a really lovely guy. And, you know, we lived in Vancouver and I got fed up with English literature and looked around for a job. And there was this amazing place called the Maples. And it was a revolutionary treatment center for adolescents started by a radical Scottish psychiatrist whose name I can't even remember. And it was very revolutionary. And Kids would come there, all kinds of kids, kids who'd murdered people, kids who'd had breakdowns, drug addict kids. It was the last ditch place for kids. Kids would come there and they'd live there for a year and we'd try to help them. And I started getting fascinated by these kids and their families. And I became a counsellor. And I started doing things like going into family sessions and watching families and um, running groups for these kids in the morning. And I started taking courses at the university in counseling. And then I was put in charge of the school. And so I started doing special ed, teaching these kids to read. And more and more and more, I just got more into the sort of counseling psychology frame. I started taking more and more courses and after I'd worked at the Maples for about, I don't know, good eight years anyway, I just said, I want to go back and do a doctorate in, in psychology. And I went to, I went to one of the famous psychologists at university. At of, UBC? Yes. And I'd done all these courses in the evenings and everything. And you were taking I, night classes yes, in psychology. Yeah. yeah. And I, I said, I want to, and I'd done an MA. In, an in, MA? Okay. Yeah. In, Along in, the way. Ed, adult education at, or something. At, at UBC? Yes, in the okay. evenings, right? Got it. So I was pretty busy, yeah. little B. Yeah. And so I went to this famous psychologist and he said, well, what do you want to study? Well, I want to study um, people's emotions and how they deal with them and how they communicate oh, and the relationships and how relationships change people. And I want to study how people change. And I, And he looked at me like I was a worm or something and said we don't do any of that (laughs) I said I said well what do you do then and he said we do assessment and personality testing and in other words he gave me this long list of the things he did and I said well I'm not interested in any of that you know, so how did you get interested in relationships and chat? I mean, it seems like you're going this way and then you you just suddenly interested in, re- in relationships from a therapy perspective. No, I think my whole life was about relationships and I saw relationships in novels and, and I got it from knowing in my gut how a powerful emotion was and how things happened in conversations with other people that mattered, that changed people, that changed realities. I knew that in my bones, and I'd studied it in literature. And then I went to the Maples, 
And I'd work with these incredible kids that had yeah. had lives that were just hell. Uh. And I'd see them change. And in sometimes I was their primary counselor. And did you, you know? start developing theories of change for yourself watching this happen? Well, or? I'm not sure I developed theories of change, but I knew what didn't work. Uh-huh. And what was that? Well, almost everything. <laughs> <that> we, <laughs> you know, I knew that when the psychiatrist said to me, sat and said... <laughs> When the psychiatrist turned and gave this mother all this insight into how she was a bad mother and that she was enmeshed with her kid, I knew that wasn't helpful. Right. I knew it didn't help the kid and that I knew the mother felt worse afterwards. Yeah. And I knew that when I sat down and listened to the mother, the way I saw my father listen in the pub, Ah. when I sat down and listened to the mother... And empathize with how hard it must be to have a child who was suicidal and empathized with how she felt responsible, that then I would turn and look at the child and the child would have tears in his eyes, whereas all he'd done for six weeks was tell me to F off and threaten anyone who went near him. But now his mother's talking about how hard it is for her to be a mom and how she yeah. loves her son. And his, her son is sitting there in tears. So this, these, those kids educated me. But you see, I couldn't find any of that in the literature. I yeah. couldn't. I could you find had, Carl Rogers. Sort of, well, right. I could find Carl Rogers. And he was, and he was talking about unconditional positive regard. Exactly. And, and, and empathy. Exactly. And, and so I got fascinated and I went off and did a... I went to the counseling department at UBC... And they said, what are you interested in? And I told them, and they didn't freak out. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't say, oh, yes, we have a whole bunch of that. But they didn't say, go away, you're weird. So I I went and did a a doctorate in counselling. And when I look at it, I was nuts. Okay, folks, that's it for part one. Thanks to Sue Johnson for her candor and good humor. And stay tuned for part two, where we discuss the development of EFT, as well as where things stand now for Sue's ongoing work. Sue will also be sharing her view of how we should all be spending our time in this one life any of us is ever going to have. In part two, the candor and good humor continue, and the science is brought into sharper focus. Folks, music for this episode of Circle of Willis was written and performed by Tom Stoffer of Tucson, Arizona. For information about how to purchase Tom's music, as well as the music of his band, The New Drakes, check the About page at circleofwillispodcast.com. Circle of Willis is produced by Siva Vijanathan and brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. And, and... Circle of Willis is a member of the TGFM Podcast Network. Find out more about that at teej.fm. Special thanks to VQR editor Paul Reyes, WTJUFM general manager Nathan Moore, as well as NPR reporter and co-founder of the very popular podcast Invisibilia, Lulu Miller. If you like this podcast, how about giving us a little review at iTunes and letting us know how we're doing? It's super easy, and we like it. 
or go the more direct route by sending us an email at circleofwillispod at gmail.com. That's circleofwillispod at gmail.com. You can also contact us by visiting circleofwillispodcast.com and clicking on the contact tab. All right. Now, as I've already said, our next episode will feature part two of my epic conversation with Sue Johnson. Don't miss it. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.